You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, take two. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is your host, Abraham. And this is Shane. And so uh, I, I already said it backwards again. We're just going to roll with it. This is your uh, favorite consumable psychology podcast. Hey, you did it. I did. I took a crack at it. <laughs> just <to see> it. <laughs> I just want. I just really needed the feeling, you know, I needed the wind under my wings. That's it. Well, how can you ask somebody to do something if you don't do it yourself? Exactly. So um, all of this is to say that, uh, let me out of here, Shane, you need to put me, transition me to the real world because... I've been here for too long in this place. It's just not humane. Yeah, we're getting, yeah, we got to get you out of this really restrictive environment into something less restrictive, right? We're going to deinstitutionalize me. Bom, bom, bom. That was a great so, intro. That was our best yeah, one ever. Yeah. <laughs> yes, finally. That's it. We, it only took 109 episodes to get here. Sweet. So um, I have recently discovered that I'm a big history nerd um, and I really love like the history of our field and deinstitutionalization is one of those things that working in, I, I work in both environments where I'll work in like a, a more restrictive environment and work in home and based community settings or home and community based settings. And this particular thing, this whole deinstitutionalization thing, I think is really important for understanding kind of how services have worked and how politics play into this and stuff. And so we're going to, kind of dig into this a little bit, but I want to start by saying that there are some political components to this that are related to public policy and um, some particular uh, presidential administrations. And so what we're going to try and do is just kind of give you that context. We're not going to try and take sides on it uh, as far as that stuff goes. We're going to try to keep it as politically neutral as possible and really discuss kind of what the policy was and how it impacted the, the United States. Perfect. Well, let's go ahead and just define it because we've been saying this word deinstitutionalization, which has a lot of syllables, um, <laughs> but that's uh, not super clear necessarily what that might mean. And so deinstitutionalization was this policy of moving those people, those human beings who were deemed mentally ill, which is a importantly way too broad category, from large state institutions and closing facilities um, either partially or entirely, uh, sometimes referred to as mental asylums or insane asylums. Okay, and so when you see those old movies that are like there are these mental hospitals where there are all these crazy people who are in padded rooms and all of that, that's largely an artifact of the past. That that doesn't exist very commonly anymore. Um, but that was how mental health was treated. And I don't know if we're going to get into this later, but this included things like at least initially. Um, women who are hyster considered hysterical because they were upset about something like their husband cheating on them or their child dying or their home falling apart. And mm -hmm. so they were considered hysterical or they were being beaten. Um, they were being abused. And so they ended up getting locked in these places or people who um, identified as having a sexual preference other than a, a binary uh, simply heterosexual uh, were sometimes locked in here. So this was a fairly broad uh, category of people who ended up in these asylums. Yes. And I believe Virginia Woolf spent some time in one, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the famous author. So um, I did not know that. I think so. I think that I think I want to say that she did um, because I think that she was in. I may have this entirely wrong, but it may be because she was considered hysterical. Wow. Um, yeah. Well, 
And uh, and I think it, we should also clarify the the term deinstitutionalization, which seems to s- sort of indicate in its name that we're removing the institutionalization part of this, which is to say getting rid of the the hospital. It would actually be better talked about as a trans institutionalization because it wasn't actually just giving getting them out of hospitals, but moving them to other types of facilities, right? Right, exactly. So you saw this transition from these larger state hospitals to something smaller, um, you know, like smaller community-based things. And we're going to talk more about that later. But um, I think what's kind of critical here is talking about why these things were in place at, initially. And we talked about this idea of like, you know, housing the mentally ill, quote unquote, mentally ill in these places like mental asylums or insane asylums. And so it's probably important to describe what an asylum is, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that historically speaking, to seek asylum is simply to seek shelter. That's it. That's really all that that means. Asylum means shelter. And this is historically done by those vulnerable populations that needed help. Refugees, people who were uh, fleeing a war zone, people who had been uh, prosecuted and were uh, leaving their country, Um, even uh, people who, as I said, were in those domestically abusive situations and needed help. However, and so that would be that would be seeking asylum. However, this mental asylum, or what is often called an insane asylum, was anything but this sheltered place for them to go where they would be protected against persecution. This was actually kind of an almost systematic form of persecution in a way. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's there's definitely some discussion that's worthy around these places were attempting to treat there were people in these places that did attempt to treat some of the concerns but for the most part it was not it was not a great place to be yeah and i guess it is important to say that as you mentioned their intentions were good for most of them and not all of these places were horrible places more than anything i think mental health was not well understood and so the hospitals were not set up in a way to really do very well and a lot of times helping those people who needed that help. Right, exactly. So um, so we're going to kind of give a timeline a little bit, but it's important to kind of recognize where these places started. So the oldest mental health hospital was built in 1768, which I think is, it, it kind of gives you a picture of how, you know, how much rich history is built into this particular topic. Um, 250 first, years ago. Yeah, which is not, I mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, not very long ago, but if you're talking about this particular issue, it's still pretty far away. Yeah. Um, and then, and the first patient was actually admitted five years later. So they weren't even admitted until 1773. And I believe that was in the, uh, in the United States specifically. Now, even as early as the 1840s, uh, people like one person that you could maybe consider a hero of the story, um, her name was Dorothy Dix, D-I-X. And people like Dorothy were appalled by the state of these so-called mental asylums, um, at least in the ones that she had visited. And were and she was really advocated, advocating for and lobbied for reforms to those institutions. However, deinstitutionalization didn't really begin until nearly 100 years later during the civil rights movement in the middle of the 20th century. Right. And so the, so the timing of this seemed to imply that, that deinstitutionalization was because of these places being poorly upkept, that there were civil rights issues and kind of all these things. Um, But there were multiple reasons why they started moving towards this. 
of the three reasons, the first one was definitely there was a poor quality of life in these places. Um, and in a lot of the places, you shouldn't say every one of them because there were some that were okay. Still understanding that people didn't really understand mental health. They did their best with what they had. Um, so a lot of the places were poorly upkept, but they also needed to save money. These places were pretty expensive to, to run because um, you're talking about round the clock medical care. You're talking about staff. You're talking about the potential for people getting injured for when you are working with those more dangerous people, right? Then the third part was they were actually trying to introduce a new antipsychotic medication that would help negate the need for the hospitals. Yeah, absolutely. That part of understanding the context for this and why it wasn't, you know, Dorothy was advocating for this, Dorothy Dix, in in the mid 1800s, and change didn't come about until the 1900s. And part of the reason for that was because they're like, well, what are what are we supposed to do? We have nothing else for these people. All we got is like ice picks and uh, and and electricity that and like what and we got to keep them off the street somehow. So <laughs> yeah, that's pretty and, much it. Right. But as soon as pharmaceuticals started being developed that were designed specifically, and I and designed is the important caveat here. I'm not saying that they're working the way they're supposed to be working, but they were designed specifically to address mental health issues. Had the state and and federal government looking at this going like, hey, like let's wash our hands of this expense and like get those people out of there. Now again, that was just there was sort of those three main pillars of of why this was able to take place. But that third one really helped to be that linchpin in like now we have what we need to justify closing these because they're not necessary anymore. Right. And we're going to actually hit on that particular issue when we get into the timeline because that's because that's part of the first wave of the entire deinstitutionalization system or policy. So, um, so let's dig into that. Let's go ahead and look at this timeline from start to finish of how this policy came about and kind of where it ended up. Okay, so the first thing was that we've kind of mentioned this before. There were a lot of criticisms about state-run hospitals and mental health facilities. They weren't doing really well. They weren't really upkept. People weren't really having a great quality of life, and they were incredibly restrictive. People were kind of, they were locked away, and they were locked away for good, almost. It was almost like this really, like almost people would voluntarily, you know, check themselves in and then never get out. Yeah, it was like a, a prison sentence where you weren't actually sentenced and it was under the guise of we're locking you up to help you sort of thing. Yeah. So at the time that um, they started moving on this deinstitutionalization policy, JFK's administration actually created a joint commission on mental health, which is pretty cool that they actually started looking at this. They put together this committee to start looking at mental health concerns. And he had expressed a specific interest in this area because his sister Rosemary had had a lobotomy when she was 23 per her father's request. Right. And at that time, lobotomies were being seen as the most cutting edge technology for dealing with mental health is sticking that ice pick up into their uh, their brain and, and scrambling their uh, brain around, uh, scrambling their neurons. And um, for some people, there were small effects. But for um, for Rosemary Kennedy, uh, it actually left her in a nearly vegetative state and um, uh, and really radically changed her life. Yeah, so so it would make sense that this is probably a topic that's near and dear to his part, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So the ultimate goal was to move from a larger state facility to more community-based care, which I think is a noble goal, right? We should be included. It's it's you talk about inclusion, you talk about all that, um, and and it was a model scene that we actually kind of see in practice today. You see a lot of community-based care. As somebody who works in community-based care, um, that's really all I've ever known as far yeah. as my practice. 
And you can correct me if you're wrong, but isn't part of the idea of that is to help them be more independent, the, the people who are in those systems, so that they have the dignity of having a life that they have some amount of autonomy and control over, right? Absolutely. That's the goal is, is that you're working in a community-based setting. The goal is so that somebody doesn't need those services for the rest of their lives. Say hospitals didn't have that. Right. And so this uh, this shift that was taking place to that community-based care model um, moved the funding from what was being provided at the state level to being uh, responsible at the federal level, so um, by the, the federal government. Yeah. So if somebody's more independent, then they need less resources. And if they need less resources, then it's less costly to taxpayers and to the state and to the government and all that stuff. So ultimately, it's win-win for everybody. You've got people who are, who are deemed mentally ill, who are becoming more independent. You've got state-funded programs that aren't going to be as costly. Like, it sounds good, right? On, on, on the surface, it sounds good. And people are going to get care. And so they sit down with this and they're like, okay, what steps do I need to take? Well, the two main components here are that we need to get people moved out of the, those facilities. And the second one is to actually close down those facilities and you know wrap it up so that they can start using them to film horror movies in. <laughs> or do ghost tours <laughs> or, or do ghost tours exactly <laughs> so so that's and that's exactly what happened so they so they had to figure out how to get people out of the community out of the facility so one of the first things that happened was that people who were diagnosed after the policy was implemented couldn't go into these facilities they were one of the first groups that never even contacted state state facilities they were immediately going into community-based care so that was one thing that kind of like was really cool about it is they didn't continue to put people into these programs after they after the policy was implemented if they were diagnosed later. Perfect. Yeah. And then there was some uh, some waves of activity that took place to facilitate this moving out of the facilities. And the first wave really began in 1955 when the uh, the pharmaceutical drug Thorazine was introduced as a sort of chemical restraint for treating those with mental illness. And um, this was the first antipsychotic medication that was accepted as being an effective treatment for those mental illnesses. But as I understand it, it was largely to I guess, knock people out in a way of just sort of like, let's, let's get you as doped up and loopy as possible so that you are just kind of sort of sit there and drool on yourself and you won't be able to do, do anything. And so it's, it's like locking you in a padded room where there aren't any walls because you, uh, you just can't move, um, or do anything to yourself. Yeah. If you ever see, um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which is a good, oh, good example which is a great, one of my favorite examples of all this. If you go in and you look at that, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, when Jack Nicholson has a lobotomy and he's come stumbling and drooling on himself, um, there's something called the Thorazine shuffle that is, oh, yeah. which is, which is, it looks similar. You're pretty much what the description is. I, I've always said is like, you're kind of snowed. Like you're, you're very like, everything is a haze. Like you don't really have control of all of your faculties and you just kind of shuffle your feet. And um, you've heard, I've heard the same term for Haldol too. Um, when somebody is pretty much over-medicated, that was one of the big side effects that came out of, of, of Thorazine. And, and so people had a really hard time with that later. Like at the time, at this time, they were like, that's, it's good. This person's no longer having psychotic episodes. We can release them with this drug. And it wasn't really helping them. 
Yeah, I mean, it did have the appearance of having them just watched a Transformers movie um, where they walk around <laughs> drooling and tripping all over themselves and confused about the world. But they, um, but it also did look like, well, th- we can give these people this drug and they, they're sedated, they're not agitated, they seem like they are very mellow and therefore this is a safe way to transition them out of these hospitals. That was at least the working hypothesis or conclusion with uh, that as one of that as that step right so it was, a, it was a quick fix a band-aid issue right so that's pretty much what it came down to so so they introduced this drug they start getting some stuff under control and then the second wave is that they began to close state mental hospitals and move individuals to quote less restrictive environments and so what that meant was that they were moving individuals sometimes into the community and that could have been a group home that could have been a smaller location that could have been any number of things but they were moving or it could have been nothing at all um, really depending on the, on the individuals. So they started moving people out of these state mental hospitals as they were closing them. And as most teenagers can attest, just because you are living uh, not necessarily in a locked room, if you're under the, the rule of someone else who's telling you what you can and can't do with your life, this in practice may not have really been that much less restrictive. They weren't necessarily in a a behind four inch thick steel door that locked every night with a tiny two by two inch window on it. But they were in something that was slightly bigger and looked a little bit more like a bedroom, which, you know, was probably a little less daunting feeling, um, but not really that much more free. Right. And so you had these, and, or you have people that when they came out of this place that, that they had a roof over their head or a meal every day, they would go into a situation where they had nowhere to go. They hadn't had jobs for years. They had no family to support them and they did not have any really good transition plans. Thorazine was the big start of some of the problems that came along with this, but when they started transitioning out people out and they didn't have a place to go, that was the second biggest issue that came out of this. Or I would say the biggest issue that came out, but it really one that they didn't anticipate really well. Yeah. And so how many people was, were affected by this? So at the time when they impl- implemented this policy, 560,000 patients were being held in psychiatric facilities. So that's, that's half a, a million people. people. Half a million people were in these facilities at this time. So their, their plan was to move half a million people out of these facilities, or at least close to that, and into some kind of community-based care. Now, in 1994... The, the current stats, and, and this kind of, this was some of the stats that we found. In 1994, and this is still pretty current, about 71,000 people are still in these types of facilities. So there, the facilities still exist, but there's only about 71,000 people that, that actually go to these places. Um, and what you saw um, in, in, at the same time was that we've, we're talking about going from 560,000 patients to 71,000. At the time institutionalization was going on, um, in, you know, in 1955, the, the nation's population was about 160 million. So you're talking about 560,000 out of 160 million, which is still quite a bit. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a significant proportion for sure. Um, and that was in 1994, you said? No, and that, so in 1994, our population was 260 million. Oh, almost double. So almost or, double. I guess a hundred million more, not necessarily. Hundred million more. Double. Yeah. <laughs> so we had a hundred million more people, and only seventy-one thousand people. About seventy-one thousand people in these facilities. So they did move a lot of people out, right? So they got they. You know, the data suggests that they got people out of those facilities, which is probably pretty good. However, yeah, that was part of the goal, at least. That was part of the goal. Despite that, there are bigger issues. So. 
the process actually varied from state to state. So we talked about this first wave and second wave, right? So you had first wave, the Thorazine comes around, second wave, they start closing the hospitals. Every state kind of did this dip differently, implemented this stepwise or different in different ways. But some states had a 95% success rate of moving groups. So you had Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, West Virginia, Arkansas, Wisconsin, and California were all pretty successful in getting people out of these facilities. So if you were uh, if you were in Rhode Island, you were one of the the maybe quote unquote luckier ones, and that you were likely to get out of the hospital. But you cross over that state border into what's next to Rhode Island? Delaware. Delaware. Is it Delaware? Yeah. Okay. We're, we're scientists. We're not geography experts. We're, we're to make up the geography of the United States, which we live in and should know a lot better than we currently do. But let's say you cross over the road, you cross over the border of Rhode Island to Delaware, or, you know, let's just make it, if we're going to go crazy, may as well, you cross over the, the border from Rhode Island to Alaska and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which means nothing to our international listeners, but Alaska's thousands of miles away. And you're not going to be so lucky getting out of that hospital. Yeah, exactly. And if you're in Rhode Island, 98% of the people were out of there. But that was that was the kind of like the finite number. They weren't talking about transition care. They were talking about coordination of care. They were talking about getting people out of these places. So based on the policy, it was successful, right? They got a lot of people out. Yeah, I mean, the goal was to move to a less restrictive setting for, for those individuals with what might be called a mental health disorder or for whatever reason they had been put in there. And the the Commission on Mental Health took the stance that deinstitutionalization focused on, quote, the objective of maintaining the greatest degree of freedom, self-determination, autonomy, dignity, and integrity of body, mind, and spirit for the individual while he or she participates in treatment or receives services, end quote. And spoiler alert, that is not really how this went. Right. So that's exactly that's exactly it. So now we're going to talk about some of the populations that this impacted and uh, a particular schools kind of so that you can get a, a picture of this. And then we're going to talk about why this became a problem. So so we're not going to spoil it right now. We're going to leave you in suspense, but we're going to get into some of the stuff that kind of came up out of this. OK, so as I understand it, between 50 and 60 percent of people who ended up in mental health hospitals were there because they really enjoyed watching Pretty Little Liars. Um, so <laughs> understandable that they ended up there, but I'm just kidding. Um, about 50, that's a lot of pop culture references I've been dropping that's, this episode. Yeah, I need to scale it back a little bit. <laughs> um, anyway, um, about 50 to 60% of them were diagnosed with schizophrenia. Another 10 to 15% of them were diagnosed with um, what was called at the time manic depressive illness, which might be called bipolar today, which is the same thing, but the name changed, um, or they would be diagnosed with severe depression. Yep. And uh, another 10 to 15% were diagnosed with actual organic brain diseases, things like epilepsy, stroke, Alzheimer's disease, and brain damage, uh, secondary to trauma or TBI. So, so they're contacting a lot of different, you, you see these facilities are contacting a lot of different mental health concerns. It's not just somebody who is having auditory hallucinations and um, hearing God speak to them through their TV. It's, it's, that might be a very small percentage of that, even that schizophrenia population. Um, but you're talking about some pretty significant challenges that have to do with brain damage and mental illness and neurology and all that stuff. So the remaining percentage of uh, that population were those that had other di other diagnoses such as um, autism, um, alcoholism, drug addiction um, that was concurrent with brain damage, mental retardation, and um, and other types of disorders like that. So that was sort of the the remaining percentage of that population. Right. So you can see it was kind of a catch-all. Like these places were a catch-all. Yeah, and I mean mental health and mental illness, as we mentioned before, they just 
we did not know nearly as much about those things at that time as we do now. And if you look back at like 1955, I mean, you we barely had a diagnostic system at all in place. I mean, it was it was things like you'd see a doctor who's like, "Yep, they're crazy," and like that was that was about the extent of it. There were very few well researched diagnostic processes for mental health disorders. You you had slightly better ones for those organic brain diseases because they were very observable, but a way of otherwise classifying um, these experiences of mental health disorders was just um, it was it was lacking to say the least. Yeah, and I mean if you if you consider the timeline and consider just the field of psychology in general, the field of psychology at this time is still a fairly new field. And you're talking about 1955. This this is a, this is a, a place of practice that is less than 100 years old. You know, probably closer to 50 years old or so around this time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Know? When real uh, when when good mental health treatment started to become available. So, Shane, you have this landmark case of an example of what what happened with this um, this deinstitutionalization or transinstitutionalization process. Yeah. So. A lot of what gets referenced in relation to deinstitutionalization and kind of one of the the catalysts for why it was so important at this time was there was this school in upstate New York called uh, Willowbrook State School. Um, This is actually a pretty well-known school um, and and one that uh, was a facility that housed a lot of patients. So uh, this was- More than 6,000, right? Yeah, 6,000 patients and most of them had some kind of intellectual disability. So that's, so that this was, which is, I've worked in group homes with like six individuals with an intellectual disability. This is, I could not imagine how difficult this would have been. A thousand times more than that. Yes, easily. Right. And this, this is one of those places, as I understand it, that if you were to walk through the doors in this place, it would be pretty revolting. You'd look around and see what appeared to be people just living in their own filth. It just, you know, like a garbage heap that was, um, that, that was poorly maintained. It had a horrible reputation while it was open. And it, you just walked in there and look, look around thinking, how does anybody let anybody live like this? And it was even worse than that, right? So the place was not kept well. Um, people were living in filth. The, the, the patients that were there were not cared for, which is just so sad. But um, something that happened pretty regularly is that there would be hepatitis A outbreaks. And there was one report that indicated 90% of the patients at the site had contracted it. Yeah. And studies were conducted at the site to observe the impact of hepatitis A and evaluate treatment for the virus. So we got these unwilling participants. Um, these studies by uh, Sam Krugman and Robert McCollum were deemed as you might imagine, ethically dubious by expert vaccinologists at the time. And I think that's putting it very nicely. So this is taking a vulnerable population that can't advocate for themselves stuck in what amounts to a prison, and these are kids, and giving them hepatitis or letting them have hepatitis or otherwise creating a situation where they're just going to get it because it's so filthy, and then watching what happens to them. I mean, this is sort of like Tuskegee all over again. That's I was just gonna say. That's a, that's a, exactly it. I mean, it's just this this just dark times in psychology. So that's that's why I like to talk about it is because we need to know what our history is because this was problematic. Yeah, what's the quote? I think it was from Winston Churchill: "Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it." Yep, absolutely. So so know where you came from. So when people cite psychology as being problematic, you can go back and be like, "Yeah, it was," but there's some benefit too. There's probably more benefit than harm. Yeah. Now, eventually, Willowbrook was closed as a result of a a major class action lawsuit that was brought against the facility. And it was specifically because, as you might imagine, the inhumane and unhygienic 
unhygienic living conditions. And it finally closed its doors for good in, in 1987, shortly after the second Ghostbusters movie. <laughs> so, which is um, still a great movie, by the way. Actually, I'm not sure if that came out in 87. I don't remember what year it came out. I'm going to guess that's when it came out, though, and just yeah. say that I'm right. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, that's the one with the slime. It's good. Yeah. Okay. You, you can see why we would want to take these facilities and shut them down because it seems more like more harm was being done than good, right? Overall. Yeah. However, I mean, this does create kind of a conundrum. As we said, you sort of need a two-prong approach here. And while there, the two steps were like, let's transition people out and close the facilities, you also have to have the step of where do you transition them to? So where, where do they go once they leave the hospitals? And we did mention some of those, um, those like group homes and assisted communities and, and whatnot, but there was no transition of care or follow-up following those individuals being discharged from their facilities. So essentially those who had lived in those facilities for years were sort of just put out in the world, um, would end up in a place where someone might make sure they're alive, but otherwise didn't receive any additional support or any additional treatment for their, um, whatever they were suffering with. Right. And so what ended up happening is that some would benefit from the change. There are people that shouldn't have been in these facilities, right? We, we can recognize that. There are people that just had a, a hard time, that just need a little bit of support and got out of these facilities and, and went on to have pretty rich lives. But the majority that were released ended up in a lot of different places. Um, so you found that the homeless population increased quite a bit during this time because a lot of the individuals that were in these places did not have an adequate place to go. There was no transition of care. They were living on the streets. They were in the care of their loved ones who were not equipped to address their mental health needs. So you had people that had put these individuals into a facility and now they're back in their care. So now they're having to figure out how to, to, to care for somebody with these mental health needs that they weren't prepared for, or they ended up in prisons. And I've heard some verifiable accounts that there were some states that went to transition those people out. They would literally just ship them across the border to another state, drop them off at a bus stop and say, see ya, good luck. And mm -hmm. and yeah, as you said, like this is this is where a huge proportion of that uh, homeless population came from is people who were taken from the only home that they have because they were locked away in this prison, dumped on the street where they didn't have a home. And many of them had severely debilitating mental health issues and then that that was it. And then people have the gall to look at those people on the street and be like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you pick yourself up and go get a job, you bum? And they're yeah. just like, I need help. Yeah. And it's, it's <laughs> like, I can't, do, I literally can't do this. I don't have the skills. You know, yeah. I worked, I worked with a, a woman who had been in a, who had been institutionalized from the time that she was a toddler until they had deinstitutionalized a lot of state hospitals in, in Ohio. Yeah. And when I started working with her, she had been in group homes, but she had never learned any skills. They, nobody had taught her anything and she had tardive dyskinesia. So she had all these side effects of these medications that uh, the tardive dyskinesia related to that. She, was, she had all these tremors, she was shaking, she had this really hard time. And it just was a shame to see that somebody was so uh, impacted by this policy for so long. I mean, I worked with her 10 years ago, you know, eight, five, 10 years ago. And this was still, we're still seeing the impacts of this. Man. Yeah, and I mean- just looking at this, the overall process of transitioning people out of that restrictive environment to a less restrictive one, this could have worked. This could have. This could have been if they'd had a plan in place, if they'd had a place for them to go, if they'd thought about how are we going to address this once they're out of there rather than let's drug them up, you know, slap them on the butt, throw them off the bus and say like, have fun. There's, there's the whole world for you. Now you're free. Good job. But the way that it was carried out, the way that it has been approached historically, it 
it looks like it couldn't work. And actually, there is an interesting quote here um, that goes, quote, deinstitutionalization doesn't work. We just switched places. Instead of being in hospitals, the people are in jail. The whole system is topsy-turvy, and the last person served is the mentally ill person, end quote. And this was from a jail official in Ohio. Yeah. And so what you saw was that um, we kind of talked about the homeless population expanding and and growing because of this and all that, but um, there was a boom in the prison systems as a result of this. And so there's a couple different examples that we're going to go over. Um, So for example, uh, George Wooten was uh, was jailed multiple times in the Denver County Jail in May of 1984. Um, and you saw this kind of pop up a lot around this population. He was a 32-year-old man. He'd been jailed over 100 times, including 28 times in the previous two years. So, and just for creating disturbances in the community. Now, what's important about this situation is that he had been diagnosed with schizophrenia at 17. And each time he used alcohol or sniffed glue or paint, or paint fumes, it made the symptoms worse. And so then he would start, so not only did he have schizophrenia, but now he had addiction issues and none of this was being treated. So instead of being treated, he was getting arrested multiple times. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about, this is someone who has struggled with this probably their whole life, only diagnosed at 17, doesn't mean he wasn't suffering from it before, never learned appropriate skills for deal with this and found some amount of relief in self-medication in the form of mind-altering substances um, and probably was jabbed with Thorazine a couple of times, you know, and like, and had no way of navigating his world in a meaningful way. And the only solution that people approached this with was like, let's just get him off the streets, throw him in jail. And I mean, I can't even begin to imagine how costly that was to all the taxpayers to like, rather than address this and get this person some help, let's keep jailing them over and over and over again. Like Mm -hmm. that's just, that's a terrible idea. What a poor way of, of managing this. Right. And it doesn't, it didn't get any better. Like that was, that was part of the problem. Like it didn't fix what was happening with this guy. It didn't serve him any purpose other than he was being jailed again and again and again. And to your point, so um, between 1980 and 1995, so just this 15 year span, the total number of those individuals who are incarcerated in American jails while this deinstitutional deinstitutionalization was going on increased from 501,886, so over 500,000 people to 1.5 million people, or specifically 1,587,791. So very closely, almost 1.6 million people. So this is an increase of 216% from the uh, incarcerated um, people. And of course, not all of those are going to be people who had some kind of mental health diagnosis, but they did provide a substantial a number of people who basically just went from one set of locked doors to another set of locked doors. And again, at tremendous expense to the government. Yeah. And ultimately more restrictive, right? So we talked about the state facilities not being nearly as restrictive, not being behind iron bars, but now you're talking about somebody who is jailed in a cell. And in a population of people that are not diagnosed with a mental illness. And, and you, you have this, this powder keg of issues that goes on there. Yeah. And they, I mean, they were likely to be, um, the, there's something I don't know if we've talked about before, but people who have mental health um, disorders are far more likely to be the victims and to be victimized by other people than they are to be perpetrators of some type of crime. So they end up in these places probably mostly because people are scared of them and don't know how to how to manage their behavior, which seems unpredictable and um, different from what they're used to. And then they um, they end up in this place where they're likely to be beaten, um, to be um, abused, to be mistreated. And again, they don't even know what's going on some of the time. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so, uh, you know, besides kind of seeing that there's an increase in, in, in people being incarcerated, you also saw this increase in mercy bookings. And people talk about this, but they don't really understand a lot of what it is or didn't know that it had a formal title. So what mercy bookings are, are essentially somebody commits a petty crime just to, so they can stay in a warm place with food and shelter. Homeless shelters are being filled with people and, not, and there's no care for that. Um, they're being kicked out of their, their facilities. There's no care for them in those hospitals anymore. So this was the easiest way to get food and shelter. So not only do you see people committing more egregious crimes, you saw people committing petty crimes just to get a meal. Yeah, I mean, you just got to think about these poor people who were probably thrown in these hospitals, stayed there for decades, never developed any skills. They were, they probably, their brain sort of rotted away while they were in these under-stimulating environments. Then they're, um, they're drugged up, thrown on the street, um, and now they're homeless, and they're just like, to get any sort of respite, the, their best option is to commit some kind of crime so that when they end up in jail, they are at least in a place where there's shelter and it's they're protected from the elements. It's probably warm and they get some amount of um, the, the state's required to provide uh, provision so that they don't starve to death while they're there, which of course is necessary because otherwise it would just be a, de- a death sentence. Um, and I mean, yeah, like that, that becomes their best option. And it's one of those things where that's why they do those things. That's why people will sometimes um, do these, these criminal activities is because that's their best choice at that point. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, to kind of further elaborate on that point, um, John Belcher had done a study with 30, 132 patients that were discharged from a Columbus State Hospital. And so um, what they did was in 1985, they started studying these patients at one month, three months, and six months to see what happened after their transition. And by the end of six months, 17% of that 132 had been arrested. So you saw in a, even in a small group, they were being arrested. Now, 65 of those 132 had a diagnosis of schizophrenia, manic depressive illness, or severe depression. Um, And and 21 of them had been arrested and jailed. But there's not a lot of data on what other diagnoses were there. But ultimately, what you see is 132 people were discharged, and many of them got arrested as following that discharge. Yeah, sort of this uh, this hospital to to jail pipeline of like, well, we're just going to shuffle you from this this cage to this cage. And, uh, what, and and just these poor people again, like they just don't even, they don't have the, they don't have an option. They don't have a choice. They don't have anything that they can do to better their situation. And they also have almost nobody who are, who's advocating for them. Yeah. And so you see that, um, you know, at the end of the day, this became a bigger problem than people were prepared for. I think that the intention was good. And they just did not have the systems in place to make it happen in the way that it should have. And that's ultimately why, why you see, you see these, like, these horrifying stats. So, but we do have some good news. So it's not all doom and gloom. Things, have gotten, things have gotten a little better. Yay. Yay. So we wanted to provide a little bit of current information. So now we've talked about deinstitutionalization as a policy and kind of um, seeing what the effects were, but seeing kind of the remedies that are coming up. So in 2010, the Affordable Health Care Act had mandated that insurance companies must cover mental health care as one of the 10 essential benefits. So now people are having more access to mental health treatment, including alcohol, drug, and other substance abuse and addiction issues. So, so people are taking it more seriously. Now, that was as, that was as recent as 2010. Yeah. And I mean, um, in 2013, there was an article that uh, reported that almost 7% of the population would be diagnosed as having a, a severe mental illness. Um, and that's 7%. I mean, while that doesn't sound like a huge percent, that is a 
ton of people um, yeah. who would who would have that diagnosis. And if all of those people are locked up, we're looking at a major, major shift in how our government would have to handle those things, both state and federal governments. Yeah, especially if you're talking about close to 300 million people, 7% of that population is a big deal. Yeah, that's, I mean, the to give you, I guess, a frame of reference, what I, I've been hearing recently, I, I like to to listen to podcasts that will report on some of the things like the economy and where if you see something as small as 0.5%, that will bloom an entire industry around catering to the the demand created by a 0.5% of the population. So 7% is an enormous, as four times, 14 times that. Yeah, that's an enormous amount and a lot that, that affects a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that kind of came out of this too is that many states started focusing on a least restrictive environment type of policy. So they started looking at um, creating services or rendering services in home or community-based settings. So what this means is I work in, if I work in a family home and I'm providing services and this person needs a higher level of care, they don't immediately go to some kind of lockdown facility. They might go to somewhere that's a little bit more restrictive that can pro provide a different level of support than can be offered in that setting. So what they try to do is they try to move backwards. They try to, or backwards is probably not the appropriate term. They try to move into a more restrictive if they can or if they need to, but they only go as restrictive as is necessary to, to better support that person. It does seem to be that at least over the last maybe 20 years or so, the goal really has been let's support this population and helping them be more independent and and have that dignity that dignity and even though like there's always going to be a question of dollars and cents as a bottom line to the people who are cutting the checks and making the decisions about policies around this when there is that compassionate angle it does end up actually saving money like when we approach this in terms of how can we help these people have a more independent more fulfilling more socially engaged life then it ends up costing us less money to fund that approach because they don't end up in the in the prison system. They don't end up causing a bunch of, uh, you know, committing a bunch of crimes. They don't end up having to go to these subsidized shelters because they, they can take care of themselves. So like it would cost so much less to just support that population than to just try and ignore them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So one thing that occurred to me as we were talking about this and as I did my research is this did seem to be more or less American focused. And it, and that was partially, you know, when I was preparing my, my notes on this, was that we were talking about deinstitutionalization as it took place in the United States. But what's interesting is that there are reports that this is not just an American movement, that other countries too have taken on this approach of how to deal differently with how they have treated mental health. Obviously, not every single country locked them up in a prison system to begin with. But for those countries that did take that approach of what do we do with these people? Let's put them in a quote unquote hospital um, where in, in, they will be interred for some indefinite period of time. Um, around the globe, you saw reductions in hospital settings. So in Australia, China, South America, Africa, these were all places where... Um, that that there was a big push to try and reduce the the I'm going to call them incarcerated individuals who had mental health uh, problems and that's why they were being incar uh, incarcerated um, in Uganda right now there's only one of these hospitals left it's pretty cool. So it was cool to see that like around the same time this movement was happening. So it wasn't just that they're happening in stages or that you see like kind of this ripple effect. You saw this happening at the same time. So that was really neat. Now um, as far as current reports go, 
and this is as soon as 2014, um, it, it seems to indicate that that 71,000 number is still pretty accurate. That's still about where that number hovers. But um, we actually were able to reduce the number of state hospitals in the United States from 322 active state-funded, federally-funded hospitals to down to 188. So it, I think that's a pretty significant decrease considering that we're talking about shutting down most of these facilities at some point. Yeah. And I mean, they are, they are still around and often they do still provide a valuable service to some people. And as I said, once we transitioned away from like, we're just going to drug people up or we're just going to lobotomize them, or we're just going to uh, shock their brains, um, which I want to make sure I indicate like there, there is some research to support electroconvulsive therapy for um, some mental health disorders. We got a, a very impassioned, communication from someone who used that, who is like, Hey, you guys talked pretty disparagingly of this, but this is actually really helpful. Um, so I want to make sure that we're, we're clear that we're not just saying this is an evil thing, but there are other ways of addressing this and the, that these new settings are much more likely to include looking at their behavioral health and developing, um, support around teaching them more independence and better symbols and providing them the resources they need to be successful. And they're probably more closely monitored than they have ever been. Like when we're talking yeah. about the 50s versus the, the aughts, you know, um, we're talking about specifically that, that there are more policies and procedures in place to protect these vulnerable populations. So on top of the fact that, the, the, that they, we have moved to a least restrictive environment and more person-centered like intervention, we've also moved to protecting those vulnerable individuals from the type of care that they were receiving back in the 40s and 50s. Cool. Ready to wrap this thing up? Let's do it. So just some kind of general take-home points. Deinstitutionalization, its ultimate goal was was pretty wholesome and, and pretty important. I think it has made some pretty good impacts, but it, it, it was implemented so poorly that it resulted in a bigger issue than people were ready for. Yeah. I mean, it would have been ideal if those people hadn't been locked up in the first place, but knowing that they were already there, the idea of like trying to get them out of those facilities was probably a generally good idea, especially thinking of places like Willowbrook um, where and, and other places, you know, where they were living in squalor and they were not being treated with humanity and with dignity that this was this was a perfectly reasonable position to want to take. It just the way that it was executed lacked the important foresight that would have been necessary to make it a successful and effective transition. So deinstitutionalization from looking at this from like a government level, this is a policy and it essentially included those two sort of waves we talked about of getting them out of the hospitals and then shutting down those hospitals. Yeah. And so ultimately we kind of, we kind of touched on this a little bit, the, that poor planning and the lack of funding resulted in some bigger issues. Like you had high recidivism rates, you had a really high issue of jailing and homeless populations that kind of bloomed. So you saw bigger issues that came out of just moving somebody out of a state hospital. I think we probably ended up wasting more money. I don't want to say wasting. We ended up costing more money to the consumers uh, and to the, the to the taxpayers and all of the all the people that were involved in this. We ended up causing more issues than good as a result of that poor planning and lack of funding. Yeah. Another point is that there is strong evidence that increases in that crime um, may have been specifically related to that, that policy. And we've talked about that quite a bit. Um, and actually, I think you just mentioned that the we sort of just filter them out of these hospitals and right into jails as they sometimes there were those mercy bookings because they, that, were their, that was their best option. And sometimes like they just didn't know how to behave outside of the walls of that institution. And so we're like, well, got to lock you up again. And that was just happened to them. Yep. That's pretty much it. And so ultimately there are still facilities open that provide treatment for those with more severe symptoms or that might need a higher level of care. Um, they are out there. 
uh, they are more closely monitored. They are there. There's a little bit more science behind what they're doing now too. And I think that those are important things to recognize, but there are still facilities out there, but they're just not as prevalent as they used to be. Yeah. And we probably don't need to deinstitutionalize a lot of those at this point. Like there are probably some places where people are still interned that don't need to be or shouldn't be, or would be better off in a less restrictive environment. But there are going to be those people who they don't have any family, they don't have anything else. And the best support for them will be uh, something that's more like a hospital. I don't know if we need as many as there are, but maybe we do. It's just unclear. Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of just where we're at with this topic, I think, is that I, I don't think we would even advocate that everything needs to be shut down, just that we have a very clear process for why are you here? How are we going to take care of you while you're here? What's the plan to transition you to a more independent life? And then and always to have a goal of what that looks like. Yeah, the, the terminal goal should not be to be in a, a, a state-funded hospital facility for the rest of somebody's life. Yeah. Like that's that if that's your if that's the end goal then you're missing the point of human services. Yeah, absolutely. So, I think that's a good place to end. Perfect. I feel pretty good about that. Uh really well done on this, Shane. Thank you, man. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, I guess if if people didn't know, Shane uh really did the the major legwork on the background and research of this episode. So, if you enjoyed this one, you can send a email and let Shane know. I'm sure he'd appreciate that. Yeah, I love feedback. So, and if I did something <laughs> wrong, tell me too. I'm happy with that. Yep. <laughs> Which um, really leads us to, hey, uh, we love hearing from people. Contact us, email us, tweet to us, uh, post something on Facebook. Um, if you want to talk to me specifically, I monitor our Discord server. Uh, so, uh, hey, we have all these new Patreon levels that you can join. They have all these cool perks for every level that you join. You get that level and all the perks below that, which includes things like bonus episodes, uncut versions of episodes, videos of us recording. Um, you can talk to us on our Discord server. Um, I also monitor our email and our SoundCloud comments. So those are places you can talk to me directly. Other Otherwise, uh, Shane, I believe you monitor our Twitter for the most part. Um, I monitor, I kind of help monitor our Instagram um, and some of okay. our Facebook. So I haven't really spent a lot of time on Twitter yet, but that is something that we are going to work on kind of having more of a private uh, presence on as well. Sweet. Um, perfect. Yeah. And then you can reach us on a whole bunch of platforms. We're on the smart speakers and um, tune in, uh, Spotify, all, all the places. All the fun stuff. Yep. All right. Perfect. Well, I think that's it. Anything else? Nope, that's it. All right, thank you for listening. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. We're out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. This is Abraham. And this is Shane.
and we are hosting this show for you. And You're- that's what happened i introduced it before we said anything i'm gonna stop we'll scrap that let's try that again (laughs) (laughs) okay that was great whoops all right three two one go all right take two welcome to why we do what we do this is your host abraham and it's a shame and so uh i i already said it backwards again we're just gonna roll with it